0: For free shipping and 365-day returns. Greetings, comrades. And today we talk about a truly, truly important innovation of military warfare. A tank that... Could be said, changed history, because I promised you that I will be talking about tank specifications and everything. And what better way to start off all of our talking about tanks than um, the venerable workhorse, the kind of the most famous tank of them all, at least here in Eastern Europe, the T-34. I don't know how the people think about all of this in the west, but over here in the Soviet block, and the post-Soviet block, if someone says, hey, think of a tank, or just visualize a tank, the default tank, right? You think of a T-34. T-34 has the tank silhouette. It's the tank that overshadows everything else. It's awesome and great and everything that can be, it's like um, the most default tank. Ever. It's a medium tank and it had variations too, it was a weird thing really, and the Soviet tank that really did change the world, but it also was sort of, kind of a death trap in a way. Think about it, it's an amazing thing. I'll start with some technical statistics because, well, I want to give this venerable beast the justice that it deserves and then we'll go through its history. And it was in service by the Soviet Union from 1940s to 1960s, and it is still in service by other rogue states, mostly in Africa civil wars from the 1950s, used by Soviet Union and 39 others. It is the, basically the, the Kalashnikov of tanks. It was designed from 1937 to 1940, and it was built by Kharkiv. Archive, yes, modern-day Ukraine, Morozov Machine Building Design Bureau. It was amazing. It was produced from 1940 to 1945 in USSR, from 1951 to 1955 in Poland, and from 1951 to 1958 in Czechoslovakia. In total, 84,000 of these tanks were built, out of which 35, 1,000 were uh, T-34s, and 48, or almost 49,000 were T-34s, 85s. Its mass was 29.2 tons. Its length was 6.68 meters, that's 21 feet 11 inches. Its width was 3 meters, 9 feet, and 10 inches. Height was 2.45 meters, 8 feet. Crew consisted of 4 people of T-34, and 5 people for t 34 85 Armour was 74mm hull front at a 60% angle, upper part. 45mm for 60 degree elevation, lower part. Hull side, 40mm, 41 degree slope. Hull rear, 45mm. Hull top, 20mm. Hull bottom, 15mm. Turret front, 60mm, that's 2.4 inches. Turret side. 52mm, 30 degrees angle, turret rear, 30mm, turret top, 16mm. And its main armament was the famous 76mm 3-inch F-34 tank gun. We'll get to that later. It was changed to 85mm This fifty-three uh, forty thirty-five eighty-five. 40, Secondary armament were two 7.62mm DT machine guns. And its engine was diesel, model V234, 38.8-liter V12 diesel engine, with a maximum power of 500 horsepower. It was uh, kind of a weird thing. Its maximum speed was 53 kilometers per hour. That's 33 miles per hour. And we'll talk all of this situation, really, but that's the technical data. Now let's look at why this tank is just so amazing. And I don't know, if someone wants, I'll, I'll just compare it to other things too, but... Hey, the 34 let's go. In June 1941, Hitler's army swept into Soviet Union during Operation Barbarossa, the largest invasion in human history. The Red Army was badly organized, underprepared and quite stunned by a rapid blitzkrieg, which destroyed their air force on the ground and surrounded and annihilated entire battle groups. Moved on up until December 1941. That was a dark month, and at the end of the dark year for the Soviets as the Germans pressed ever onward toward Moscow. There, where Joseph Stalin, Uncle Joe, and his, well, minions, how else to call them, Plotted what to do next against the Nazi juggernaut that had, in a few short months, rolled over everything before them? Poland had been taken, even though they had fled it. The Molotov Ribbentrop Pact was broken, and then Denmark and Norway, and then Belgium and France, had fallen to the Germans, who now had advanced units reportedly within eyeshot of the Kremlin. The German commanders were confident they had never tasted defeat at that point and the december 4th intelligence report stated flatly that the soviets were simply not capable of quote, conducting a counteroffensive without significant reserves unfortunately for the germans they had the soviet t-34 tank to contend with and they underestimated their opponent one officer wrote lieutenant tank made hits on the T-34, once at about 20 meters and four times at 50 meters, without any noticeable effect. Nazi forces were taken by surprise by a new Soviet tank, the T-34, which advanced on German forces, like a prehistoric monster, again quoting one officer, shrugging off fire from half a dozen German tanks. The axe fell the very next day, and the Soviet's, launched a massive surprise assault that, quote, caught the Germans almost literally frozen in their positions. As historian Max Hastings aptly describes Winter plays a hand, minus 30 degrees Celsius temperature freezing the German lubricants while the Russian equipment performed fine, especially the T-34 tanks with their specially designed compressed air starters. Initially, infantryman Albrecht Linsen could not believe his eyes with the rapid onrush of Soviet tanks and men. Out of the snowstorm, German soldiers were running back, scattering in all directions like a panic-stricken herd of animals. A lone officer stood against this desperate mass. He gesticulated, tried to pull out his pistol, and then simply let it pass. Lancer Linsen was momentarily befuddled as well. There was an explosion near him, and he felt a searing pain in my right thigh. I thought, I'm going to die here, 21 years old, in the snow before Moscow. The unrelated Russians, fortified with additional tanks and equipment and bolstered by the freshly arrived Siberian troops, charged into the German salients north and south of Moscow and kept pressing forward. For days, the Germans staggered backward from the determined and unrelenting Soviet attacks. The invaders were pushed back between 60 and 150 miles before General Walter Model managed to rally his forces and stop the back-paddling in the face of the T-34s. The T-34 seemed impervious to German weapons and able to destroy German tanks with ease. Panzer commander General Heinz Guderian saw the heavy losses inflicted by T-34s and realized what a game-changer it was, outlasting his own Panzer Jagdpanzer threes and fours. Up to this time we had enjoyed tank superiority, but now the situation was reversed, Guderian wrote. The prospect of rapid, decisive victories was fading in consequence. The mass-produced machine guns, cannon, and steel would help seal the fate of the Third Reich, and many, many years later its influence can still be felt on the battleground. But the T-34 is also a twenty-six-ton paradox. It's about short tons and long tons and and tons because at that time apparently people had three different versions of it and I mentioned it's 29 tons, those are short tons. In modern terms it would be 26 tons, so it's kind of weird, really. Like I said, it is considered one of the most influential tanks ever created. Some experts consider it little more than a hastily constructed death trap. The truth lies somewhere in between, I guess. So, what, what made the T-34 tanks so formidable? The Germans had encountered the sturdy T-34s a few months earlier in their invasion of the Soviet Union. They had learned their Panzer III and four medium tanks, which had successfully spearheaded the French and Polish campaigns, were simply no match for the powerful and new turret forward sloped armored tanks sent against them. Each shot seems to be a direct hit, one German anti tank gunner said early in the June 1941 invasion. But the shells bounce off. The fire doesn't seem to bother the tanks in the least, added the astonished gunner in describing the T-34s and Russia's heavier, less nimble KVs' ability to ward off German firepower. We're going to be talking about the KVs soon, too. No, not in this episode, but in general. The T-34 was equipped with the characteristics that the German tankers would come to envy. Thicker armor that was sloped further held deflect enemy fire. A robust V12 diesel engine, a low-profile and wide tracks that made movement across snow and mud comparatively easy. Let me remind you, most German tanks used petrol. Soviets mostly used diesel. The wide tracks proved particularly crucial in traversing the vast stretches of the motherland with its few, comparatively primitive roads that often became little more than canals of mud in the rasputitsa. Rasputitsa is something that is undermentioned often because well, everyone knows about the general snow, or the general winter, as the westerners called, but it's actually general snow since 1812 already. They even had a question on about this fact on the Russian TV show что, or where, what, and when. And yes, it's general snow, not general winter. It's a snow really. The thing is that Raspustitsa is called the kernel Raspustitsa. Raspustitsa is when everything melts. And specifically in Ukraine and other, some more fertile grounds, everything becomes basically mud. Tons and tons and tons of mud. Thick, deep mud. The Germans in 1941 were initially taken aback by the power and effectiveness of the T-34, and they promptly realized the need to gear up and meet the challenges posed by the Soviet tank. In November 1941, a special German armor investigation committee visited General Oberst Heinz Guderian's second panzer army and examined several captured T-34s. The outspoken Guderian demanded a complete rethinking of German tanks and called for greatly improved mobility, greater armor protection, and a heavier main gun. This led to two different and competing design approaches by the Nazis. One led by daimler Blenz, designer of the Panzer III, and visited tanks similar to the appearance to the T-34, powered by this 150 horsepower diesel engine and rear wheel drive. That would be Panther. We'll talk about Panther. But a bit more history is needed to understand how we even got to these T-34s. Hey guys, Annette here. I hope you are enjoying our new episode of the Eastern Border. As always, a big thank you to all of our Patreons. The show would not be possible without your help. If you are not a Patreon and would like to become one, head over to the Eastern Border page on patreon.com. Please remember to also follow us on our social media like Twitter, where we are known as Eastern underscore Border, and on our Facebook page. We also have a Discord server, so if you're interested in that, find the link in the description of this podcast. That's it for now. See you online. This podcast brought to you by Russianvoiceovers.eu. Enjoy. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards. Only at a Sleep Number Store or sleepnumber.com. Years before Operation Barbarossa, Soviet T-26 tanks had easily outmatched German and Italian tanks during the Spanish Civil War, but they had some unacceptable weaknesses. The big problem was the T-26 was way too easily destroyed by light anti-tank weapons and even improvised weapons like Molotov cocktails, which uh, Winter War showed the effectiveness of them. That's how they got their name. They were cocktails for Molotov. Winter War is going to be an episode two at some point. Finally. Finally. Anyway, Voroshilov, the defense minister, shot by Stalin in 1937, wrote in 1937... These tanks take heavy losses without fail. In response, the Red Army planners drew up specifications for a new, 26-ton medium tank, one which would be fast and mobile, but also a much better protected. It would also carry bigger cannon than the T-26, giving it the ability to take on fortifications as well as enemy tanks. This, at that point, was a revolutionary concept. Previously, tanks had been lumbering battleships, or fast but fragile tankettes. So combining speed, firepower, and protection in one package was a huge challenge, and would require an innovative design. Stalin signed the order to begin production in April 1994, and by June, the first 34s were rolling off the production line. These were funded by a mandatory voluntary, that's how we like to call them, You know, the things that you have to buy, but uh, you're forced to buy them, but uh, it's sort of voluntary. Lottery tickets. And namely, uh, in the pictures of this episode, if you visit our website, theeasternborder.lv, there's a little button up there called, you know, Donate to the Show. You can click that one, too, and support the show if you don't want to go to Patreon, too, by the way. And there's a picture of one of these. Uh, the, The tickets cost 25 rubles. And it was uh, given out by the Narodny Commissariat Finance of SSSR. It was the fourth Monetary and Material Lottery ticket. It was the thing that kept everything funded, and those things, well, uh, your salary would, would go to them. So, that's what also kind of made it special. The most striking aspect of the T-34's appearance was its angled surfaces. Rather than being a basic metal box, like earlier tanks, looking at you, first World War tanks... The T-34 was carefully designed to present sloping armor facets to incoming shells. Striking at an angle had two effects. It increased the thickness of armor that a shell had to penetrate, and the oblique angle meant a shell was likely to glance off rather than going through. The Soviets also developed a new type of steel for the T-34's armor. Researchers at the Mariupol factory in Ukraine spent years in the special MZ-2 alloy, Which combined hardness with ductility and the ability to compress without breaking, so it neither shattered nor gave way. This combination of slope and steel was extremely effective. One determined 37 millimeter gun crew reported firing 23 times against a single T-34 tank, only managing to jam the tank's turret ring. Said the German officer. While the other tanks were armed with 50 millimeter, uh, which is two inch caliber guns, firing six pound shells. The T-34 packed a new 76mm 3-inch gun, the F-34. This fired a 14-pound armor-piercing projectile able to punch through 2 inches of steel armor at a a kilometer's range. The T-34 also fired the F-354 high-explosive rounds to knock out buildings or bunkers. One of the more interesting things, the 34 uh, the common name for T thirty four came early in the war with a very weird uh, shorter seventy five millimeter main gun, and the fun part that I found was that this uh, the soviet tank was based in good portion, like all soviet uh, good stuff, the nukes, the Kalashnikov, and everything else. So it's made of good quality with little regulations from themselves. Yeah, basically stolen. So one thing that surprised me is that. This was based in a lot of aspects from an innovative American engineer, J. Walter Christie, who used a then-novel suspension system that enabled the tank to move quickly over uneven ground. The ability and ease of movement across the Russian steppes was critical throughout much of the war. That was much the case, especially when skilled Soviet gunners learned to fire on the move. This is kind of weird, because... Besides this, besides when they finally settled on their uh, 76.2mm gun, a number of prototypes secretly produced by the Soviets, some using the standard 45mm main gun, and others equipped with larger 76.2mm guns. Yeah, that kind of just proved that, well, with the worst gun, initial Soviet ventures into Finland in late 1939, which, as I still don't know why the Winter War is not part of World War II, proved quite disastrous with the loss of 80 tanks in the first week alone to Finnish anti-tank guns. And this also prodded Stalin's bureaucracy, select a prototype tank built at a locomotive factory in Kharkov that finally became the T-34. The initial go-ahead came after a grueling road test and demonstrations that the tank's maximum of 44 millimeters of sloped armor could withstand fire from 45mm AT guns. Secret mobility tests had been run at the Kubinka test area against the Panzer III purchased from then-allied Germany. The prototypes were driven back to the factory in about a 2,000 km round trip and later successfully used in a demonstration blowing up captured Finnish bunkers. When the Germans introduced new tanks like the Tiger with even heavier protection, the Soviets fitted the T-34 with an upsized turret mounting and an even bigger gun, the 85mm ZIS-S-53, which remained effective throughout the war and long after. That's the variant, T-34-85. In addition to the main armament, like I said, the T-34 also packed two machine guns, one in the hull and one coaxial with the big gun, for tackling infantry at shorter range. Funnily enough, larger T-34s had pistol ports on either side of the turret, if the fighting got really close up. The third aspect was mobility with the T-34's 8.3-liter, 500-horsepower V-12 engine, giving it an impressive top speed of 34 miles per hour. That's 54 kilometers per hour. Cross-country performance was vital, and special wide tracks exerted no more ground pressure than the human footprint. This allowed the T-34 to traverse deep mud and snow, where German panzers bogged down. Raspustisze is a factor, really. The T-34 was designed as a low-cost vehicle to be mass-produced in large numbers. But at the time of the German invasion, the Soviets had about 1,000 of the new tank. Many, many more thousands soon more followed. The T-34 was the backbone of the Red Army during the epic battle of Kursk in 1934, the largest tank battle ever fought. The German plan was to break through and surround the Red Army group as they had successfully done earlier in the war. This time, the Soviets counterattacked. With the order, Stahl, 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 or steel, 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 General Rostmistrov ordered the 5th Guards Tank Army into action at the Prokhorovka Bridgehead held by our German heavy tanks. A 100 to 200 meters in front of me appeared 15, then 30, then 40 tanks. Finally, there were too many of them to count, wrote one German officer. Soviet and German forces close to short range, with the superior mobility of the T-34s became clear. Deprived in the melee of their advantage in firepower, which they had enjoyed at the beginning of the offensive, in the clash with our other armoured formations, the Germans were now completely astonished by the Soviet T-34 tanks from shorter distances, Trotsky wrote. The Red Army still took heavy casualties, but they stemmed the German advance, and the Prochroche bridgehead became a turning point. It was the end of the German strategic offensive, the tide turned, and it would soon crash in the streets of Berlin. German General von Kleist called the T-34 the finest tank in the world and suggested the Reich should copy it rather than designing their own. While that idea was dropped, again, the next German tank, the Panther, which i will talk about too, was one which had a strong influence from the T-34. We had nothing comparable, brought General von Melentin about the failed 1941 assault on Moscow. The 334s played a great part in saving the Russian capital, but still, it was a dream tank death trap. While the T-34 may have been a war winner, it had serious flaws. The small turret could only fit two crewmen, so the tank commander doubled as a gunner, severely limiting situational awareness in combat. The cabin was also cramped, with United States Army analysts amazed that the crew could even get in while wearing winter gear. The lack of shock absorbers made it for a rough ride when traveling cross-country, and the interior was extremely loud, making prolonged drives very fatiguing. Interestingly enough, when the tank had to shoot, the drivers inside had to open up the top hatch, otherwise their eardrums would pop, and they also had to close their ears down. Worse, from a combat perspective, the commander and driver had trouble seeing outside the tank. A German Panzer was far more likely to see first and shoot first. Most early T-34s lacked a radio, so other vehicles in the platoon communicated with flags or just followed the leader. The crash gearbox made changing gears hard work and drivers carried a sledgehammer for when they got stuck. As usual, if it's Soviet, carry a sledgehammer. We'll do just fine, comrade. Engineering was poor compared to other tanks of the period and the T-34s were plagued with mechanical problems. Breakdowns were common and some crews even took to carrying a spare transmission as they failed so frequently. The tracks were made of light metal and often came apart from battle damage or simple wet and tear, leaving the crew stranded on the battlefield. The dream tank for the generals could be a death trap for soldiers. Early T thirty fours had only one turret hatch which was heavy and hard to open. If the tank was hit, the crews were unlikely to get out before it exploded. The single heavy turret hatch was replaced with a pair of lighter turret hatches in 1942, significantly improved crew survival rates. The protection wasn't great either. The United States metallurgical study found that the 34's armor had high hardness but was brittle, making it vulnerable to later more powerful German guns. It could do well at the beginning, not so much at the end. If it hit hard enough, the metal tended to spall, whatever that means. Meaning that a non penetrating hitch showered the crew compartment with high speed metal splinters. Even the fire extinguishers could be hazardous. An analysis by the CIA noted that the extinguishers filled the crew space with toxic carbon tetrachloride, which the ventilation system could not clear out rapidly. Presumably the idea was to save the valuable vehicle rather than the crew. Another United States Army study with a thirty four concluded that the overall build quality of and materials were poor and rated it inferior to American tanks in terms of ease of driving, reliability, and maintainability, in short, a among tanks. But it won the war. And you could buy so, so, so many T-34s over the cost of whatever Americans could build at that point. I mean, seriously. T-34s, like everything Soviet, was built for rugged experience. Sure, it wasn't equipped with the best deck, just like a Kalashnikov. But it's the tank equivalent of a Kalashnikov. It's not the best deck, but it does its work just fine. And so, it's amazing. And it has left a lasting legacy, though. A weird one, in a way. However, I personally love it. It's uh, one of my favorite tanks, and like I said, it's THE default tank. It was just... Something that we know is a tank, really. However, since World War II, commentators in the West, whom I reliably trust always in this show, knowing that I made it just to counter their stupid things that they say sometimes, Mm, yeah, still, some commentators in the West have been critical of the T-34, some calling it the most overrated tank of the war, which I find very dumb myself. Much detailed analysis has been expended on trying to show that the T-34's performance as action was really not that good. However, the fact is that the Soviets won the war on the Eastern Front, largely thanks to its massive number of tanks. A phenomenal number of T-34s were built over its lifetime, over 84,000 in total, compared to just 1,347 of the celebrated German Tiger, which was a definitely better tank, But when you compare the numbers, it's just that 84,000 versus barely 1,500. Oh, and Sherman tank, the most produced United States tank, yeah, only 48,000, almost half of the T-34s. Red Army tank crews were badly trained and experienced compared to the German opponents. The leadership was notoriously weak, partly as a result of Stalin's purchase of the officer corps which is also quite disputed at least here in the East by some people, but we'll get to that, but let it slide, let it slide. This is the official source, and I'm quoting that one. So inevitably Soviets lost a lot of tanks. But they won the war, because they were able to build more than they lost, thanks to the T-34's simple, practical design. And if you haven't noticed, this is interesting, because for one, even the M1 Abrams follows in many of the same design footsteps T-34 revolutionized during World War II. See, T-34 was the tank, and still is. Many World War II tanks were obsolete by the end of the war. Even the United States M4 Sherman was superseded in 1949. But the T-34 remained in service for decades, and even now T-34s can still be found soldiering on in the arsenals of countries like Namibia, Bosnia and Herzegovina, and Laos. In 2014, two pranksters broke into a T 34 in a war memorial in Ukraine and succeeded in starting the engine. They managed to start the engine of a of, 70 of something old tank. Testimony to just how robustly it was built. It was crazy. It was insane. It wasn't the best tank built on the planet. It wasn't the most advanced tank built on the planet. And still is the venerable workhorse of the tank world. But the T-34's biggest legacy has been in changing the direction of tank design. While the Germans experimented with heavy tanks like Tiger and of even bigger vehicles, those proved to be an evolutionary dead end. 80 years after the first T-34 came off the production line, modern tanks, including the latest and greatest M1 Abrams tanks, have followed the T-34's formula of speed, sloping armor, and a powerful cannon. The T-34 was a great and a terrible tank. But it was very, very cheap. It was super efficient. The argument will last for another 80 or something years or so. It's going to be crazy. Because it was in the Soviet style to state that, you know, the Americans had the best tank on the planet Earth. They built everything with the latest technology and everything was super important and super digitalized everything. And it cost 150 million. The Russians Russians can get to 70% of that effectiveness for 40% the price. That's that, that that kind of explains all of it. And well, I really hope you liked and enjoyed this study of the venerable war horse and the thing that comes into mind into every little boy's head when they hear the word tank here in Eastern Europe. And uh, yeah, please become a patron of the show and uh, write in the comment section which tank I should look at next because I'll look at various tanks of the World War Two and. And mostly folks in the Soviet side, of course, but also their enemies, and I'll be doing some technical stuff too. But yeah, this was the T 34. Thank you for listening to The Eastern Border. If you have any comments or specific details you'd like to know, you're welcome to leave it in the comment section on our site, theeasternborder.lv, and we'll rummage even to the western border to find you an answer. Like this podcast? Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or on our RSS feed. Happiness is mandatory. Good reviews and donations feed the farmers of our hosts in the Great Motherland. The Eastern Border salutes you. This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org for more shows like this one. The Dark Myths Void.